Well, how time has flown. This is our last week. This will be our eighth week of looking at this series, Dangerous Faith. And I don't know how you found it. I found it challenging. I found it interesting. I've loved some of the stories and the video clips that we have looked at. And it's very easy just to kind of just do this talk and rush on and say, well, we've done this series. I wanted us to pause and not rush on. You see, it's not just Pisa that has leaning towers. I saw lots of leaning towers when I used to live in Egypt. Sadly, it wasn't that uncommon. It's partly because I saw the way that they built the buildings. They would kind of pour concrete in, but often they wouldn't let the concrete dry. They wouldn't give it enough time to dry before they began to build upon it, before it became solid. And I think it's important that we don't rush on from this series, but we let some of the truth, what God has been wanting to say to us, what he's been wanting to say to us as a church, to kind of solidify, for a better word, to allow these truths to transform us. We're told in the Bible that we are transformed by the renewing of our minds. And we're interested in transformation because as followers of Jesus, as apprentices of Jesus, we are always seeking to be transformed. This is our aim. That's our desire. As a philosopher, Christian, Dallas Widow put it, he asked this question, what kind of people are you becoming? What kind of people are we becoming as individuals, as Winchester Vineyard? What kind of people is God inviting us to be through this series? And I don't want to rush on. I want everything that God wants to do in and through us because of this series to go deep into our hearts and to solidify. So I'm just going to pray, particularly as we come to read and look at the last video in this series. And say, God, I am open. I'm saying yes. And I'm saying this on behalf of the, the staff in relation to the church, to everything. We did this series for a reason. We really believe that you wanted to change us. We really believe that you wanted to give us a new set of values, a new way of looking at life. All you wanted to accomplish through this series, God, come and do in us. So, Father, I just pray that. Lord, there's so many truths, Lord, so many principles, so many amazing stories that I and we have heard, Lord, over the last few weeks. And God, I don't want to just say, well, that was a great series and that was good. But Lord, on behalf of myself and on behalf of each one of us, God, we just say yes, God, to you. And I just pray, Lord, that all that you wanted to do in us, God, the way that you wanted to transform us individually as a church. The mindsets, Lord, that you wanted to change, Lord. The hearts, Lord, that you wanted to break, Lord. The, the hearts, Lord, that you wanted to create in us. That you would do it, God. Have your way in us, we pray. Amen. And just before looking at the last video, I'm just going to read from Acts chapter 20. Starting at verse 17. For Miletus, which is where Paul was, Paul sent to Ephesus for the elders of the church. When they arrived, he said to them, You know how I lived the whole time I was with you, from the first day I came into the province of Asia. 
I served the Lord with great humility and with tears, although I was severely tested by the plots of the Jews. Do you know that I had not hesitated to preach anything that would be helpful to you, but I have taught you publicly and from house to house. I have declared to both Jew and Greek that they must turn to God in repentance and have faith in our Lord Jesus. And now, compelled by the Spirit, I am going to Jerusalem, not knowing what will happen to me there. I only know that in every city the Holy Spirit warns me that prisons and hardships are facing me. However, I consider my life worth nothing to me, if only I may finish the race and complete the task the Lord Jesus Christ has given me, the task of testifying to the gospel of God's grace. And then he just shares a few more thoughts. And then in verse 32, it says this, Now I commit you to God and to the word of his grace, which can build you up and give you an inheritance among all those who are sanctified. I have not coveted anyone's silver or gold or clothing. Do you know yourselves that these hands of mine have supplied my own needs and the needs of my companions? In everything I did, I showed you that by this kind of hard work, we must help the weak, remembering the words the Lord Jesus himself said, it's more blessed to give than to receive. When he had said this, he knelt down with all of them and prayed. They all wept as they embraced him and kissed him. What grieved them most was his statement that they would never see his face again. Then they accompanied him to the ship. So he kind of goes to the ship, but he's on his way to Jerusalem. And picking up in chapter 21, verse 7, we, it says, we continued our voyage to Tar and landed at Plotomice, where we greeted the brothers and stayed with them for a day. Leaving the next day, we reached Caesarea and stayed at the house of Peter, the evangelist, one of the seven. He had four unmarried daughters who prophesied. After we had been there a number of days, a prophet named Agabus came down from Judea. Coming over to us, he took Paul's belt, he tied his own hands and feet with it and said, The Holy Spirit says, In this way, the Jews of Jerusalem will bind the owner of this belt and will hand him over to to the Gentiles. When we heard this, we and the people there pleaded with Paul not to go to Jerusalem. Then Paul answered, Why are you weeping and breaking my heart? I am ready not only to be bound, but also to die in Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. When he would not be dissuaded, we gave up and said, The Lord's will be done. Let's just look at the next video in the Dangerous Faith series. Let me tell you about one of the bravest men I ever met. He was a church pastor in Colombia, and when I met him, he travelled with his family to attend a gathering of pastors, all of whom had faced persecution from anti-Christian guerrilla forces. He, his wife and three children had travelled for five hours to attend this event, all five of them on the back of one motorbike. My wife and I had the chance to sit with him and listen to his story. He'd followed a calling, he believed, to plant a church in a small village. It was hard going, but soon Christians began to gather together in his house. And then he had a message from the guerrilla commanders. He was to stop. There was to be no more meetings. In Colombia, the communist guerrillas do not like independent churches like this. They don't like it when people discover a living faith, when they change their allegiance from some local warlord to the Prince of Peace. So they try to close them down. The pastor obeyed this command, sort of. He actually carried on meeting with the Christians in secret, but the trouble was it wasn't quite secret enough. 
One day when he and his family were away from the village, he got a phone call. And the phone call simply said that the guerrillas were waiting for him and would be there when he got back. He knew what that meant. It meant that he would be shot. What did you do? We asked him. What could we do? He replied. We went back. So they returned to what he believed would be his death. On the edge of the village there was a roadblock. Nineteen guerrilla fighters were waiting for him. They told him to leave the bike. So they climbed off the bike and then they walked through the roadblock and back towards their house. And the guerrillas followed them at a distance. I could hear their footsteps, he said. They sounded like the footsteps of death. And they got to the house and the pastor went into the room that he used as a study and he knelt down and he began to pray. And his son was outside and wanted to join him, but the pastor wouldn't let him because he truly believed that the guerrillas were going to shoot him through the window. He knelt there praying with all his heart and he could hear the guerrillas coming nearer and nearer. And then they just passed by. They kept on walking. He heard them pass his window and the footsteps fade into the distance. Something changed their minds. The power of prayer, perhaps, or the quiet courage and example of the man they'd come to kill. Anyway, we asked the pastor what his vision was now for the village. I want to build a church, he said. Don't you ever think of leaving, I asked. Oh no, he replied. I will not leave until Christ gives me the victory. In the spring of 57 AD, Paul returned to Jerusalem. He was aiming to return in time for the festival of Pentecost, but he actually had a few days over. So he, along with Luke and other members of his party, stayed in Caesarea, a city on the coast of the Mediterranean. And they actually stayed with Philip, one of the seven deacons and someone who left Jerusalem many years before during the first bout of persecution. While they're staying with Philip, they were visited by a man called Agabus. Agabus is a prophet. He's come up from Judea and he lets Paul know exactly what is lying in store for him if he decides to go on and complete this journey. What Agabus does is he takes off his belt and binds it around Paul and tells him that if he goes to Jerusalem, he will be imprisoned and handed over to the Romans. This is not the first time that Paul has heard this message. A week earlier, he'd been in Tyre, where the local Christians had begged him not to go on. Everyone, it seems, knew what was going to happen. Agabus was a prophet, but perhaps he didn't need massive prophetic powers to know that Paul returning to Jerusalem was a high-risk strategy. This, after all, was a city where he once hunted Christians and imprisoned them. Now he had switched sides, and people tend not to forget that sort of thing. So they know what's going to happen. But here's the thing, Paul knows what's going to happen as well. Earlier in the journey, in his uh, farewell speech to the Ephesian elders, he told them that he too had heard from the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit testifies to me in every city, he said to them, that imprisonment and persecutions are waiting for me. There in Caesarea, everyone begs him not to go on. And then in verse 13 of chapter 21, Paul says this, What are you doing, weeping and breaking my heart? For I am ready not only to be bound, but even to die in Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. 
Paul's friends and colleagues have spent too many years with the old campaigner not to know that he's not going to change his mind. So they simply say, the Lord's will be done and prepare for the journey. And of course, that's exactly what happens. Paul ends in chains. He goes to Jerusalem. He meets opposition. A mob is raised against him. He's arrested and mistaken, in fact, for a terrorist. There's a threat against his life, so he's taken back to Caesarea, only this time in chains. And he ends up staying there for two years. It's the start of what was probably his final imprisonment. And it all begins because Paul is ready to be bound and even to die in Jerusalem. Why? Why was he so determined to go to Jerusalem? We know he was taking a collection for the Jerusalem church. Certainly he wants to demonstrate unity with the churches elsewhere in the Roman Empire. But there would have been other ways to do that. I think in the end, the reason Paul went to Jerusalem was that he simply couldn't not go. He was under orders, impelled by the Spirit and by his own calling. And it was no good saying to him that he would be made a captive. He already was a captive. When he talks to the elders from Ephesus, he describes himself as a captive to the Spirit. The Spirit was telling him to go. So that was decided. What Paul knew was that chains and captivity do not mean defeat. On the contrary, as he wrote to the Corinthians, he knew he already had all the victory through Jesus Christ. What he could see ahead was the opportunity to tell others about it. That was his goal and his mission. His friends were worried that he would be captured, that he would be defeated. But in the Christian life, captivity is not defeat. Being abused, victimised, oppressed is not defeat. Poverty, humility is not defeat. In the Christian life, the only defeat is disobedience. That pastor in Colombia talked about Christ giving him the victory, but I think he was already a victor. I think that victory was won the moment he got back onto the bike and returned home because it showed the guerrillas that they could threaten him, they could even kill him, but they could never defeat him. Wow, what a great video again. It particularly spoke to me because he uses the story of the pastor in Colombia. And if you're not aware, I was born and brought up in Colombia. And it brought back a couple of stories that were similar to it. I know at least two stories of people in Colombia who decided that they were going to follow Jesus. And when some of their fellow drinking companions discovered that they were no longer drinking and were following Jesus, they came along and they approached those and two men. And they kind of drew out a machete, being brought up in Colombia. I actually have my own machete. All my kids want this. As part of the inheritance. So they drew the machete out and they said, you need to start, stop following Jesus or we are going to kill you. And so they brought the machete up and then God just paralyzed them. They could not bring it down. And uh, in those situations, God miraculously intervened and, and spared these two men their, their lives. But like I mentioned before, I know many people, many of my colleagues, three or four every year, die as a result of sharing the good news. And um, stories like that are amazing. But like we have said again and again during this series, what are you talking about? The people I knew in Colombia as a child, where we're talking about 
this pastor in Colombia, or other people that we might be aware of. Behind the names, behind the situations, they're ordinary people who love Jesus. And one of the things I was emphasizing in the, in the video and being through this series is that we are to expect persecution. We touched on this in the last few weeks. You got verses like Matthew 10 verse 16 where Jesus said, Behold, I am sending you out as sheep in the midst of wolves. And that was going to address to those who follow him. In Tim- Timothy 3 verse 16, it says this, Paul saying this to Timothy, In fact, everyone who wants to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Everyone will. It's not going to opt in and opt out. It's like this is part of what following Jesus is like. This is part of our job description. So we're expected persecution. We're also going to expect persecution or maybe kind of hardships because God calls us to go to the lost. He calls us to go to the broken. He calls us to hang out with sinners. He calls us to go to the ends of the world. It's not kind of book that many of you might have, but not surprising the kind of book I have. Uh, it's called Why God Calls Us to Dangerous Places. It's not kind of book that people put on their kind of Christmas or shopping list. And he goes through many stories and principles, the author. And uh, one of the quotes, I just want to quote from it, it says, God calls us to dangerous places because he, lived, he loves people who live in dangerous places. And so we, we, we see that kind of principle, direct verses like Matthew 10 and 2 Timothy 3, that we are called to dangerous places. We're called to places where we will feel like sheep amongst wolves, where we'll be persecuted. So the question is, how are we going to prepare? Maybe to use another illustration. If God said to us, challenged us, I want you to go and run a marathon or I want you to learn and play the piano. Well, hopefully you're not just going to go out and just try to do it straight away. Well, if you do the piano, it just sounds awful. But if you have never run before and you try to do a marathon, it's going to hurt. Way more than it's going to hurt anyhow. You know, I've never run a marathon. I've referred to run is 12, 13 miles. But even for that, I didn't just jump to that. I began by preparation. I just ran a few miles. And then I did a few other things that got me faster and they got me stronger. And so it's like we've been told we're going to have persecution. It's like, what can we do now that will help us, that will prepare us? Or to maybe use some other type of biblical language that might kind of make sense. There's a story we find in 1 Samuel um, chapter 30. And it's a story about David and he has a group of his men in a place called Zilzag. And um, bottom line is everything seems to just be going wrong. And um, David and his men had gone out to fight and they come back home and kind of their wives and families and livestock, they're all being robbed by somebody else. And it says this in 1 Samuel 30 verse 6, David was greatly distressed because the men were talking of stoning him. Each one was bitter in spirit because of his sons and daughters. This is a key phrase I want. But David found strength in the Lord his God. 
And I think that's the principle. We're told we're going to have persecution. We're going to have issues that are going to be difficult. If we're going to follow Jesus, how are we, like David, going to learn to strengthen ourselves? One of my jobs is to train and equip people to go and work in dangerous places. And there's an awareness there's going to be a cost. I have a couple I'm working with who are hoping to go to, yeah, man, next year. And as part of their document, you know, they, we send teams out and they have like an MOU and a vision and values document. And part of that document is that you sign is an acknowledgement that there is a high possibility that they are likely to die when they go there. And even though I deal with the situation all the time when I, when I read that, my job was to help them write this document. It just hit me again. What can I do to help them? In my line of work, they talk about developing resilience. Or TED Talks talk about developing grit, that ability to cope in these difficult situations. In the video last week, um, they had this phrase where he said that we're too reliant on external props for faith. And so today I want to focus in on things that will help us become strong, resilient, that are internal props. You see, external things are things like church services and books and, and YouTube, and, and I love these things. I love being able to gather in a physical building. Those who know me know I have hundreds of books. I'm always reading two or three books at a time. I use YouTube all the time for worship and talks that help encourage me and build me up. But they're all external because if they get taken away, do I crumble? We need internal things. And I want to focus in on particularly two today. Things that will help us be people who outwork the calling of God and upon our lives and the inevitable difficulties that will arise from that. Firstly, what's called the discipline of just centering ourselves. And secondly, the discipline of just praise and thanksgiving. And to help me, I'm just going to read a story. I mentioned this book a few times. This one is probably one you might likely like to have on your Christmas or birthday list. The Insanity of God by Rick Nipkin. And this guy went around, like I said before, interviewing people that had been put in prison for years in Russia, some of the former republics in China, and wanting to learn from their story. And there's a story by this guy called Dmitry. And he initially just gathered his family because he fought in Russia that they needed, his children needed to learn about God. And as he began to do that, some of the neighbors heard about it and they asked if they could come along and slowly this group grew to 25. And uh, when the local party officials heard about it, they came to him and they, they threatened him, you know, and said, you've set up an illegal church. And he argued that, you know, this can't be an illegal ch you know, church. You know, he's not a pastor. He has no training. He has no equipping. But they said this just looked a lot like a church. And um, and eventually the, the group grew to 50 people. And it said here, the authorities made good on their threats. I got fired from my factory job, Dimitri recounted. My wife lost her teaching position. My boys were expelled from school. And he added, little things like that. I mean, I wouldn't call that little things. And eventually the, the, the group got larger and more and more people joined the group. And eventually... You can guess the authorities turned up and they sentenced him to 17 years in a kind of Russian gulag prison. 
So just reading again a little bit more from the book. The authorities moved Dimitri a thousand kilometers away from his family and locked him in a prison. His cell was so tiny that when he got out of bed, he took but a single step either to get to the door of his cell or to reach the stained and cracked sink or to use the open toilet in the far corner. Even worse, according to Dimitri, he was the only believer amongst 1,500 hardened criminals. Dimitri pointed to two reasons for his strength in the face of torture. There were two spiritual habits he had learned from his father, disciplines that Dimitri had taken with him into prison. Without these two disciplines, Dimitri insisted his faith would have not survived. For 17 years in prison, every morning at daybreak, Dimitri would stand at attention by his bed, as was his custom. He would face the east, raise his arms and praise to God, and then he would sing a heart song, as he calls it, to Jesus. The reaction of the other prisoners was predictable. Dimitri recounted the laughter, the cursing, the jeers. The other prisoners banged metal cups against the iron bars in angry protest. They threw food and sometimes excrement at him to try to shut him up. There was another discipline too, another custom that Dimitri told me about. Whenever he found a scrap of paper in prison, he would sneak it back to the cell. There he would pull out a stub of a pencil, a tiny piece of charcoal he had saved. And he would write on that scrap of paper as tiny as he could, all the Bible verses and scripture songs or stories he could remember. When the scrap was completely filled, he would walk to the corner of his little jail cell where there was a concrete pillar that constantly dripped water except in wintertime when it became a solid coat of ice. Dimitri would take the paper fragment, reach as high as he possibly could and stick it on the damp pillar as a praise offering to God. Of course, when one of his jailers spotted a piece of paper on the pillar, he would come into the cell, take it down, read it, and beat Dimitri severely and threaten him with death. Still, Dimitri refused to stop his discipline. Every day, he rose at dawn to sing his song, and every time he found a scrap of paper, he would fill it with scripture and praise. This went on year after year. His guards tried to make him stop. The authorities did unspeakable things to his family. I'm just jumping ahead because of time's sake. His persecutors continued to discourage and silence him. Dimitri remained faithful. He was overwhelmed one day by a special gift from God. In the prison yard, he found a whole sheet of paper. And Dimitri wrote this, and God laid a pencil beside it. Dimitri went on, I rushed back to my jail cell and I wrote every scripture reference, every verse, every song, every story I could recall. I knew it was probably foolish, but I couldn't help myself. I filled both sides of the paper with much songs I could think of. I reached up and stuck the entire sheet of paper on the wet concrete pillar. Then I stood and looked at it. It was like the greatest offering I could give Jesus from my prison cell. Of course, my jailer saw it. I was beaten and punished. I was threatened with execution. Demetrius dragged from his cell. As he was dragged down the corridor in the centre of the prison, the strangest thing happened. Before they reached the door leading to the courtyard to the place of execution, 1,500 hardened criminals stood at attention by their beds. They faced the east and they began to sing. Dimitri told me it sounded like the greatest choir in all human history. 
They all raised their arms and began to sing the heart song that they'd heard Demetrius sing to Jesus every morning for all those years. Demetrius' jailers instantly released their hold on his arms and stepped away from him in terror. One of them demanded to know, Who are you? Demetrius straightened his back and stood as tall and as proud as he could. He responded, I am the son of the living God in Jesus' name. The guards returned into his cell and some time later he was released and returned to his family. Wow, great story. One more stories like that. Get the book. And uh, for me, he, Dimitri outworked both these disciplines I was talking about. He centered himself. In the morning, he would sing and it would help him just to focus himself. The discipline of centering yourself involves just trying to get your mind just fixed on one thing, on Jesus. And there's a couple of ways that people do it. Sometimes just people repeat a phrase. And I can imagine Dimitri doing this because there's a common practice in places like Russia. But they just repeat a prayer like, Jesus Christ, have mercy on me. Or sometimes you just get a verse and you just repeat it. I can do everything through Christ who strengthens me. Is a good example. It's a way of just trying to fix your mind and your thoughts. I remember hearing many years ago um, about how ballerinas stop themselves getting dizzy. I don't know if you ever thought about that. And you know, a ballerina is split, spinning and spinning. And what they do is they focus in on one thing as they enter a spin. And it's the first thing they refocus in on as they come out of this spin. The way they stop themselves getting dizzy and overwhelmed, if you remember as a child trying to spin around a room or in the garden, you get dizzy. The way they avoided that is by fixing their minds and their thoughts on one thing. This is what centering prayer does is to help fix your thoughts on God by using a phrase by using a, a verse because if not we get dizzy I don't know about you but even in this season I got dizzy as soon as I feel like I'm staggering around I'm kind of overwhelmed I don't know what to do I don't know what to, to say we get dizzy with fear we get dizzy with worry but we need to learn how to still our minds Isaiah 26 verse 3 says that God will keep in perfect peace those whose minds are steadfast because they trust in you. Centering prayer helps us to keep our minds steadfast and put our trust in God. So maybe now, just in this stillness, I don't have much time. I'm aware of kind of time rushing by. Let's just be still. Maybe close your eyes. Become aware of your breathing. You're breathing in and out. Yeah, can you do that? You're aware of your breathing. You're breathing in and out. Be aware of the seat you're sitting in. And then maybe just begin to repeat a phrase like that. Like the Eastern Orthodox Church does. Jesus Christ, have mercy on me. Jesus Christ, have mercy on me. And just let the peace of Christ just invade that time and space. Yeah, some of you can just feel him. You might just be a warm feeling. Some of you maybe don't even follow Jesus and you're thinking, what's happening now? That's God. When you welcome him, when you acknowledge him, he responds. Wow, that was good. I could stay there for a while, maybe. <laughs> Guess if you're watching this live, you could just pause it and just do that. Maybe that'd be a great thing to do. But let's begin to do that. You see... 
when you've got fear and war and you feel overwhelmed, it's, you can try to think, I don't want to do that. I don't want to think that. You're trying to push it away. Or you can fill your mind with something else. See, if your mind is full of the thoughts of God, there's no space for anything else. So let's do centering prayer. The other thing is just as you saw it with Dimitri's life, is developing a lifestyle of rejoicing, giving thanks in all circumstances. Philippians 4 verse 5 has this great phrase, Rejoice in the Lord always. And I will say again, rejoice. This was written by Paul and um, he wasn't like just throwing out a nice phrase. This was something that he had learned. It's ironically he wrote this letter to the church in Philippi because if you read in the book of Acts, there's a story of him being in a Philippi jail. And, you know, we sometimes think of jails as nice places. This would be in a place that would be just dark. There would be no lights. Rat infested, smelly. Yet in that place, Paul and his companion began just to praise and give glory to God. And they encountered God in that place. And that always happens. When we begin to praise God, we kind of invite ourselves into his presence. His presence is always there, but it kind of creates a dynamic. We're told in Psalm 100 verse 4, Enter his gates with thanksgiving and his courts with praise. Give thanks to him and praise his name. And so we need to be people that learn, like Dimitri, a lifestyle of rejoicing. And I've tried to learn from his example. I've tried in the morning. Our room actually faces east. And just as I open the curtains, standing, kneeling, <laughs> staggering, since when I'm really tired. And just beginning to give thanks. We need to learn to be people that rejoice. Do it again and again. Having that mentality and that attitude. Like Dimitri, that whatever a day looks like. That we're going to be people that learn to rejoice. And, and, and I like the phrase there. It says rejoice. This is Philippians. Rejoice in the Lord always. You see, sometimes it's hard to rejoice in our circumstances and situations. And that's not what Paul asks. And some of you are in situations and circumstances that are really, really hard. And I don't want to deny that. But we rejoice in God. You see, God and who he is, he doesn't change. He is from everlasting to everlasting. He's certain and sure. And that is where we need to rejoice in. And as the verse says there, rejoice always. Not rejoice sometimes. Not rejoice when things are going well. See, rejoicing stops the crippling disease of worry. And what worry is all about. And so as we come to the end of this series, we're invited on a journey to follow God where God wants to go. And inevitably, as we follow God, we will go into dangerous and difficult situations that will test our faith, that will stretch us. And so we need to develop lifestyles that will help us live in these times in a godly way in these situations. And I just focused in on two, using the example from Dimitri's life, that we learn to center ourselves and we learn to rejoice. And maybe just think about how that might look like for you. You know, right at the beginning, I threw out that question. What kind of person are you becoming? What kind of person is God inviting you to become? And that can mean many things from this series. But I think one of them is to learn to become people that know how, in every circumstance and situation, 
to center ourselves on God, to become aware of the presence and the reality of God in every situation. And secondly, that we learn to be people that learn to rejoice in the Lord always. I'm going to pray for myself, pray for you, and also as we've always been doing, praying for the persecuted church because they need this as well. doesn't matter what country, what situation, whether it's a long sentence, a short sentence, whether it's financial persecution or physical persecution or emotional persecution. It doesn't make any difference. These are the internal props in a good sense that we need. So Father, I pray for myself, I pray for us as a church. I pray, Lord, on behalf of all those who love you and because of their faith are facing persecution and mockery in so many different ways. And I pray, Lord, that you would help each one of them and us just to be still now, to acknowledge you, to become aware of the reality that you are there. Create that space and time, God, for you to invade our hearts, for your peace to overwhelm us, for your joy to bubble up in us, for your hope to overwhelm us, God. And Father, we will learn to be people that rejoice. God, you call us to be the most rejoicing, the most thankful, the most joy-filled people in this whole world. And we often not like that. And God, I pray, Lord, that you help us to rearrange our lives in such a way that we will develop habits, ways of doing life, that rejoicing, giving thanks, giving praise, giving worship would be the most natural thing in the world for us to do. Amen.